So welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for making time to be here with us at this, the very first session of our 2021 Summer Law Institute webinar series. Um, it's been so nice to see a couple of familiar names showing up in the chat, folks who I know would have been with us in person if that had been a safe and good option for us. Um, and we just are so grateful that uh, you guys are, are still interested in, in law and in bringing new perspectives to your students and are able to join us in this like very hectic and very, very stressful time. Um, so welcome. Uh, my name is Michelle Thompson. I'm the Director of Capacity Building and Engagement with the Ontario Justice Education Network. Um, and we are, as I said, kicking off the SLI today. If you haven't seen already, uh, my co-host and colleague, Christy Pagnuti, uh, is here as well and is going to be helping me behind the scenes uh, troubleshooting any technical issues. And you can reach out to either of us in the chat if you have any challenges or if there's anything you want to ask. Um, just a few housekeeping items uh, before we begin. Uh, you do not have access to your cameras or mics, so you're safe if there are people wandering around in their underwear behind you. Uh, no worries about that. It's happened to all of us. Um, if there are any particular links or documents that our presenters refer to, we'll do our best to find a hyperlink and drop it in chat so that you can keep track of that. This presentation is being recorded, and so um, we're going to make sure that uh, the video of this is available on OGEN's YouTube channel. Usually it takes us a couple of weeks to get it up, uh, but it'll be there eventually. Um, if you have any questions or comments, go ahead and use the chats. Uh, and we'll save a little bit of time at the end of the session to talk through all of your questions and have a little bit of discussion about the issues we're talking about today, which is uh, young workers in 2021 and some of the large structural obstacles that are facing them. Um, but before we get into the, uh, the legal content, um, we want to start by acknowledging that we are gathered upon the traditional territories of the Mississauga of the New Credit First Nation, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, the Wendat, and Huron Nations. Uh, and while we're talking today about Canada and Ontario's approach to employment law, we also want to pause to acknowledge the distinct legal traditions of those nations, all of whom had their own ways of understanding labor and the distribution of work and the benefits of that work. Um, and it's a, it's a good reminder to us that our current way of organizing labor is not the only way, and it's not even the only way that has existed on this land in, in the space that we are. Um, and in making this acknowledgement, we also want to keep in mind that Toronto remains home to a large and diverse Indigenous population. And we know that many of you are calling in from outside Toronto as well, and so we encourage you to uh, take a moment to learn more about and think more about uh, the, the nations that have been the historical stewards of the places that you are calling in from. With that said, um, I will start by introducing our first speaker, who's going to be Joshua Mandrick from Goldblatt Partners, LLP. Uh, Josh has been a fighter for workers' rights for a long, long time, uh, from union organizing law to employment class actions to collective bargaining and grievance arbitration. Josh is proud to help advance the rights of working people day in and day out. In his general labor law practice, Josh asks for, acts for unions in grievance arbitration, collective bargaining, and public policy or law reform consultations. In the class action side of his practice, Josh helps groups of non-unionized workers join together to enforce their rights at work, 
with respect to issues like employee misclassification, wage theft, and unpaid overtime. Just a couple of things that might be relevant for the conversations we're going to have today. Uh, Josh is also the former executive director of the Canadian Intern Association, which published the Canadian Intern Rights Guide, a union-made know-your-rights guide that was distributed on college and university campuses across the country. And that's only part of why we were so happy to have him here talking about uh, student workers in the context of internships, both, both academic and outside of the school system. So with that said, uh, Josh, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Michelle, for the very kind introduction. Uh, I'm really excited to be here with you all today and to talk about these issues. Uh, it's been a few years since I've done one of these talks around unpaid internships, uh, but it is a topic which is very close to my heart and something that I was very involved in uh, as a student and then as an articling student. Uh, and I've now graduated a little bit out of, of that realm. I'm no longer a student myself, but uh, in my legal work, I'm able to uh, to do some related work and we'll talk a little bit about those issues. Uh, I'm gonna share my screen now uh, and I have a bit of a presentation that we can go through. Um, so let me just get that going. Okay, so I'm here to talk to you today about unpaid internships, work credit programs and youth labor. Uh, and there are countless topics we could discuss uh, within youth labor. And so I'm gonna really focus on uh, unpaid work uh, and the issues surrounding various types of unpaid work. Uh, and this includes uh, volunteerism uh, in addition to uh, work credit programs and unpaid internships. So uh, for today's talk, uh, just, just to start it off, just some, some terminology. Um, oftentimes the term unpaid internship is used to refer to uh, unpaid internships, whether they are for, uh, for school credit or whether they're not attached to a school program. Um, today, when I use the term unpaid internship, I'll be talking about uh, the unpaid internships which aren't attached to high school, college, or university uh, study. Uh, when I talk about uh, work credit programs today, I'll be talking about um, those uh, co-op or placements or internships which are attached to high school or college or university. Uh, and um, when uh, um, uh, those can be paid or those can be unpaid, um, depending on the program and the rules. I'm also going to talk about volunteers. Uh, and volunteers, I think we all sort of intuitively know what a volunteer is, and we know uh, that it's a bit different from an unpaid intern. Um, but it's an issue that I think is related to these issues. Um, finally, I'm going to talk about um, some of the rules uh, in Ontario and federally, both in Ontario under the Employment Standards Act and federally under the Canada Labor Code. Um, the, the vast majority of workers in Canada uh, are provincially regulated, which means here in Ontario, they're subject to the ESA rather than the Canada Labor Code. Um, and I'd venture to say that the overwhelming majority of the workers um, that, uh, that are you know, students and placements that you might deal with um, are probably subject to provincial jurisdiction. Um, the federal jurisdiction would deal with things like telecommunications, the banking sector, the federal public service, and, and a few other uh, narrowly defined industries. Um, but the bulk of, of the economy is provincially regulated. So uh, with that, uh, on to uh, sort of a high-level overview of today's chat. Uh, so first, I want to talk about the emergence of unpaid internships and work credit programs, as well as the youth-led pushback that, that followed. Then I want to talk about changes regarding the regulation of unpaid internships and work credit programs, which came about in response to that youth activism. Then I want to talk about where we are now. 
um, after these changes with respect to internships, work credit programs, and also the volunteer issue. Uh, and then I want to talk uh, connected with that about some gaps in the law and some challenges that remain. Uh, and finally, uh, so that we can round it off in a constructive fashion, I want to talk a bit about how educators can help and, and how you can be involved in these issues. Um, so without further ado, uh, some backdrop on the rise of unpaid internships and work credit programs. So historically, internships have been limited uh, in the past to professions like medicine, um, but over time expanded to other industries and sectors. Um, in Ontario, uh, there was a six-part uh, so-called trainee exemption, which was introduced into the Employment Standards Act in the early 2000s. Uh, and this essentially provided that uh, a so-called intern or trainee had to be paid unless they met all six requirements. It was very difficult to meet all six of these requirements. However, uh, the lack of clarity in the law um, led to a lot of employers relying on this exemption um, and, and hiring uh, unpaid interns. Uh, we saw a steady growth in unpaid internships in the years that followed the introduction of, of this exemption. Um, but then we really saw an explosive growth in the practice following the Great Recession. And then at the same time, uh, we saw growth in work credit programs through high schools, colleges, and universities um, as work-integrated learning became a, a, a more important pillar. And we also saw mandatory volunteerism introduced. Um, and all of this led to uh, a growth in formalized unpaid labor. Uh, and I would suggest that nowadays for many young folks and students that, uh, that um, an unpaid internship or a work credit program has really become the new normal for entry into the job market. It's almost expected that folks are going to do these nowadays. Um, and I have some concerns about that. And, uh, and it's not just with unpaid internships, not connected to school, but also with work credit programs. And I do wanna preface this by saying that I know that most of you folks are educators and most of you work very hard to look out for the students that, that, you, uh, that you supervise for credit programs um, and ensure that they have meaningful opportunity uh, and so, you know, I, I don't take this in any way as a criticism of the important work that you folks do. These are really sort of broader policy concerns that we have with these issues. Um, but uh, so uh, these are these are some of the problems that I see. The first is that unpaid internships, broadly speaking, displace paid work opportunities. And that's a given when you think about the volume of these placements. There are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of these placements happening every year. We're talking about millions of person hours of work. And a lot of this is important work that helps employers and helps organizations and would otherwise be done by somebody. The second is that these placements can reproduce inequality and privilege. And the archetype of this, uh, if you think about it, is, uh, you know, the UN internship that many folks would be aware of. So, uh, you know, uh, you get an internship with the United Nations. It's very prestigious. It helps you with your future. It looks good on your resume, but it's unpaid and it's in Geneva or New York. Uh, which are incredibly expensive. Um, and if you're not someone of means, it's very difficult to actually be able to afford this and do this. Uh, and so we see how the cycle of privilege reproduces itself um, when opportunities like this are restricted in this fashion. Unpaid internships also have gendered impacts and they disproportionately impact uh, newcomers to Canada. Uh, the gendered impact uh, is multifaceted. I mean, first of all, um, we see uh, unpaid internships being more prevalent in traditionally female-dominated industries, um, but we also see it um, in a more explicit and gendered targeting 
of um, women returning to the workforce after pregnancy and parental leave for unpaid internships. And you'll see this often in postings. Uh, there, it's often an explicit targeting um, and, uh, and, and obviously a, an impact that, uh, that is disproportionate. Um, as well, um, unpaid internships often target newcomers to Canada who need uh, so-called Canadian experience requirements. And, and you often see this reflected in the job postings. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's an additional hurdle that folks have to uh, have to end up doing and going through um, to get work opportunity in Canada. Uh, and it leads to intergenerational inequity because uh, this is something that has come about now um, and wasn't necessarily the case for generations past. And so it's really um, can be understood as an intergenerational transfer of, of wealth, uh, a regressive transfer of wealth. And uh, just broadly speaking, until recent years, I would say that the regulation of unpaid internships could be characterized by lack of clarity, by gaps, uh, and or by legislative silence. I'd say the trainee exemption in Ontario uh, provided a real lack of clarity. There were gaps around uh, health and safety protections, and there was legislative silence uh, under the Canada Labour Code. It just didn't address issues around unpaid internships, and there were some negative uh, interpretations by government authorities that interpreted this as meaning that interns aren't employees and aren't protected. And then with respect to work credit programs, I'd suggest that there continues uh, to be, uh, it, the regulation continues to be characterized by overbroad exemptions, which leave uh, too much uh, of a loophole and leave it too much to employers uh, and to educational institutions um, rather than setting a stronger floor. Uh, but this that hasn't been without resistance and fight back. And so we've seen around the world, there have been youth-led movements pushing back around exploitative unpaid internships, demanding fair pay and equal treatment. And these organizations haven't just focused their efforts on, uh, on bad employers that have unpaid internships. Uh, they've been pushing governments for uh, greater legal protections, for changing the laws to give them more and stronger and better rights. Um, and this has been the case here in Canada as well. Uh, Michelle mentioned the Canadian Intern Rights Guide. That's a, a picture of some of these guides on the right. But here in Ontario and across Canada, we've seen this work from organizations, uh, including the Canadian Intern Association, uh, as well as Students Against Unpaid Internship Scams and other youth and student-led groups, which pushed for greater workplace rights for interns and for all young workers. Um, here are some photos from uh, this other group, student, uh, Students Against Unpaid Internship Scams. The right is a photo from one of the pressure campaigns, and the left is a photograph from uh, a, a protest that they did outside of a pre-budget consultation. So there's a range of tactics, some of which are engaging governments for law reform efforts, and some of which are more direct actions, and we've seen this sort of around the world. Um, and we've also seen legal strategies. Uh, um, there have been lawsuits and litigation regarding this issue. So on the right, a uh, screenshot from an article about um, some legal complaints which were filed by former Bell interns uh, about their unpaid internship program. Ultimately, that program was canceled. Uh, and, and I understand that uh, they don't hire unpaid interns anymore. Everyone there is, is paid now. Um, on the left is a screenshot uh, of a story about the S-trip class action. Um, I'm proud to have been involved in this. This is the first um, volunteer misclassification in Canada, which was either filed um, and certified. Uh, the, the class action has been certified now, um, and it's the first of this kind in Canada. There's some of these in the United States uh, regarding various um, programs uh, as well, but this was the first here. Um, and so uh, the fight back has been multifaceted. 
um, in terms of legal strategies, in terms of law reform strategies, in terms of protests, and it's gotten some results. Um, we've seen some real changes over the last uh, five to seven years or so regarding these issues. First of all, with respect to health and safety, uh, we've seen amendments in Ontario to the ESA to explicitly cover um, interns and co-op students and other types of unpaid workers. We've seen similar changes under the Canada Labour Code to bring them under coverage uh, of the occupational health and safety provisions. We've seen the removal of this uh, six-part trainee exemption, and it changed the definition of employee under the ESA. And this essentially banned unpaid internships outside of the work credit context. Um, so we've seen some real, real gains and positive improvements in these areas. But at the same time, um, we've seen a bit of an entrenchment and uh, I would say a legitimizing of uh, work credit programs that are not paid. So while we've been pushing against these exploitative unpaid internships that aren't attached to school, we've seen uh, sort of a, a legal solidification of these unpaid programs. And so in Ontario, they actually expanded the exemption um, to cover uh, private career colleges. So previously, um, high school programs, public college programs, public university programs were covered, um, but they actually expanded the exemption to cover private career colleges. And that was um, that was not something that was recommended as part of the Changing Workplaces Review, but it was something that ultimately came out of Bill 148. And, the, uh, and, and we've also seen um, no change to the exemptions for uh, students in training for certain types of professions, which we'll talk about later, um, sort of close to all of us. This includes teaching, it includes law. Um, and at the federal level, um, we've seen changes enacted to clarify that uh, unpaid interns, uh, well, that you have to pay interns rather, unless uh, they are doing it as part of a work credit program. And in the federal jurisdiction, it's been, uh, it's been defined very broadly to include secondary or post-secondary institutions, vocational schools, or equivalents outside of Canada. So uh, again, in the federal jurisdiction, you're seeing payment uh, required for uh, placements that are not connected to work credit programs, but then uh, exemption from pay for work credit programs. And so uh, I would suggest that this creates some serious holes. And uh, when my image here about where we are now is, is a piece of Swiss cheese, and that's because I think that there are some real uh, holes uh, in this approach. So in Ontario, under the ESA, um, interns outside of school approved placements uh, they have to be paid in accordance with the ESA. Uh, high school uh, work credit placements, they're exempt from the ESA. College, university, and private career colleges are similarly exempt from the ESA. Um, volunteers, there's a lack of clarity regarding the status of volunteers under the ESA. Um, it's an area that, uh, that has continued confusion um, and I would suggest um, is being taken advantage of by certain employers, but we'll, uh, we'll cover that in a little bit. Um, and uh, students in training for various professions like teaching and law and others, um, they continue to be exempt from important protections like hours of work, minimum wage, and overtime. And then federally, uh, it's a similar story. So uh, interns who are fulfilling requirement uh, of, uh, of an educational program, fairly broadly defined, uh, a work credit program, they do not need to be paid, um, but all other interns must be paid. Um, in the federal jurisdiction, it's a little bit better than Ontario for work credit programs in that students in these programs 
are entitled to other basic protections. So uh, maximum hours of work and break periods and rest periods and certain job protected leaves. So, um, you know, there's some protection against, the, you know, the 70 hour work week for these for these folks are not going to be working all day, every day with no breaks. Um, but they're still unpaid. And, you know, pay protection is really sort of the most important core uh, employment standards, and, and they're exempt from those. Uh, and of course, um, they, they do, of course, under the federal jurisdiction, have health and safety protections, the same as, as in Ontario now, which is good and important. Um, I now just want to talk a bit about some of the challenges that remain um, with respect to the different types of placements. So we know uh, the exemptions that exist for high school placements. And I would suggest that this uh, is, is problematic for a number of reasons. Um, these exemptions raise concerns regarding the displacement of paid work um, and the exploitation of young workers. We also know that not all placements are created equally. Um, so some students might get fantastic opportunities and others, not so much in terms of the learning they receive, and in terms of the types of work that they're performing. And I know that it's a lot of work for folks to, to find these for people, and it's, and it's a challenge. I, I've had the benefit and fortune of, of getting to go to some of these classes, um, the sort of the pre-placement classes where I talk to folks about their rights, and I go around the room and ask them about their placements, and you see a pretty big uh, disparity in my experience, at least. Um, and I appreciate that it's tricky balancing the desires of students to gain work opportunities with the concerns around avoiding exploitation and displacement and other policy concerns. And, and, and my concern is that um, uh, not dealing with these issues under the ESA um, downloads that responsibility um, to, to educators, to school boards, and to the Ministry of Education when it's basically an employment standards issue. Uh, there's also the high school volunteer issue, and, and this probably isn't as high on other folks' radar, but it's, it's something that has always stuck with me, um, you know, since my own experiences as a student having to do this. So as you all know, um, all Ontario high school students are required to complete 40 hours of community involvement in order to graduate. I am aware that this has been changed temporarily during the pandemic. We're just going to ignore the temporary changes and talk about the, the general uh, the rule. So. Um, and, and so there are some rules in here which stipulate that uh, that work which would normally be performed by wages by a person in the workplace is ineligible for this time, and that's to try and avoid the displacement of paid work. Um, but there's not a lot of guidance on this. And I would suggest that if you read through the rules from the ministry that they otherwise broadly permit um, work to take place in a variety of settings, including business settings, um, if you look, you'll see that there's restrictions on, for instance, working in a factory, but that's only based on the minimum age requirements. So it contemplates that, you know, a, a student under the minimum legal or above the maximum legal age, rather, um, or minimum, uh, would be allowed to do their volunteer hours in a factory, even, which obviously doesn't seem right. Um, uh, and, you know, it raises concerns regarding the displacement of paid work again, about lack of oversight about the extent to which you can find appropriate and meaningful opportunities. You know, every single high school student finding 40 hours of this, I, it's very hard. I, I remember and I, and I know and I see it from others. Um, and also there's a broader sort of policy concern about, you know, the implementation of this. And, you know, is this about conditioning young, young workers to work for free? Um, uh, you know, it, it's very difficult to challenge uh, the, the notion of volunteerism in the abstract. I mean, we all, probably volunteer a lot and it's important and we help our communities, but 
when you look at these programs in practice and how they work, there's some real challenges with them in terms of um, what students end up doing uh, and the impact that it has when you consider that uh, applied uh, more broadly across um, thousands and thousands of students uh, with 40 hours each. Post-secondary placements, we see many of the same concerns. So in Ontario under the ESA, there's a, a full-scale exemption for, uh, for these placements. Uh, federally, there's a full-scale exemption from pay. Uh, there's other minimum protections, but, but they're not entitled to pay. And uh, there's a lot of concerns with this. Again, displacement of paid work and the exploitation of young workers. I don't need to repeat that. Um, in the, in the post-secondary institution context, there's the unique concern, which I hear a lot of folks talk about, about the fact that they're essentially paying their college or university uh, in order to work for a private employer for free. Um, and that really uh, bothers a lot of folks and, and it's problematic and it incentivizes employers to grow or incentivizes institutions to grow and expand these programs because they don't need classroom space for them and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, these exemptions essentially mean that responsibility is downloaded to educational institutions to govern these. And this results in huge discrepancies across industries, across sectors, and between and across colleges and universities. So um, uh, this, this speaks to the gendered impact and about how uh, there are certain sectors and industries, um, which you tend to see more paid placements like uh, engineering, et cetera, which tend to be uh, traditionally male-dominated in industries. And then uh, in the caring sectors, for instance, you may see uh, far more unpaid placements. Um, there's also a discrepancy across institutions, and it's particularly um, more so in colleges, you tend to see institutions that actually mandate that the position's unpaid. So the student can't be paid even if the employer wants it to. Um, then you see some uh, universities which are able to take more of a high road approach um, based on their student body and their skills and their programs and, and trying to insist and push for pay. So there's a huge discrepancy uh, in these things and it's, and it's concerning. And all of this raises the equity concerns that I talked about at the outset um, when we see uh, about um, uh, how equity uh, cross-section applies to these different uh, sectors and industries and, and institutions. Um, and there's also professional student exemptions. And I'm sure that this is close to a lot of you folks um, uh, as teachers and, and other industries that it, this impacts as well. Um, but I do wanna talk about a, a law example. And so, uh, as you know, uh, students in training for various enumerated professions, which include law, teaching and others are exempt from key employment standards protections like minimum wage and overtime and hours of work. Um, and this essentially downloads the responsibility to professional regulators and leaves a lot of workers without protections. And so in law, there's been a push for the law society to do something about uh, unpaid articling uh, or underpaid articling. Um, they've indicated that they were going to um, uh, create uh, minimum standards. They were supposed to have been in effect um, in May, 2021. They are not in effect. It's unclear what the status of that is now. But, you know, uh, law students and lawyers, you know, you might not think of as the most sympathetic folks. Um, and certainly uh, many law students get a great uh, pay and they, they have a good salary. Um, and if you're at a place like uh, like our shop or Ryan's, you know, you're unionized as well. Um, but there's great disparity. And there's a lot of uh, folks who are articling students that work, uh, you know, for minimum wage or less or even for free. Um, and here's a screenshot I've got here of an article that caused a lot of uproar around a placement that uh, that basically offered a transit pass uh, as payment. Um, 
Uh, also, there's the issue around volunteer misclassification. Um, some anecdotal evidence suggests that the crackdown on unpaid internships, in addition to pushing placements into the work credit program stream, have also led to uh, unscrupulous employers um, now just calling their unpaid interns volunteers instead. Um, and, you know, you can't just do that. The law recognizes that just because someone's a volunteer doesn't mean they are um, and they can still be an employee. And the law recognizes a distinction between a so-called uh, true volunteer and a misclassified employee. But uh, there's a real lack of clarity, both in terms of regulation, legislation or case law, even on on that distinction. The cases are very old. They are they sort of predate the unpaid intern issue. Um, and if and if a court dealt with it now, you'd almost be certain that they wouldn't deal with it uh, based on those old tests. Um, and so, you know, this is sort of really uh, begging for for government to step in and actually provide some clarity. And, and finally, the last challenge is enforcement. And so, you know, we know that all non-unionized employees face real and significant barriers enforcing their rights at work. And this is even more pronounced for young workers and those trying to break into the workforce. You know, students are trying to get, get a leg in and they're trying to get an opportunity and they're trying to make connections. And uh, even more so than other employees and other workers, if you, you know, file an employment standards complaint or make a fuss at work, you know, you risk being blacklisted and being being outcast and, and missing out on future opportunities. And the ESA ha, um, has never been proactively enforced particularly well by the government, but it's gotten worse in recent years. So uh, proactive inspections are significantly down, which is unfortunate. Um, and so uh, there's a real uh, problem with enforcement where, uh, you know, well, in theory, unpaid into, well, not in theory, in law, unpaid internships uh, outside of work credit, credit programs are illegal, and you can't do that. Um, but in practice, we know that employers uh, continue to do this. And so here I've got a posting uh, from one, and the font is too small, uh, it'll get circulated, but I do want to highlight some things from this because it really highlights the problematic nature of these. And so this post asks, uh, above all, are you willing to sacrifice the short term for the long term? Um, and it suggests that this is a four to six month unpaid internship and has the potential for renewal and or uh, uh, full-time status at the end of the internship period. So it's dangling the prospect of actual employment in front of the young worker. Uh, it says uh, you must be willing to work from 9 a.m. to 5 a.m. four to five days a week. Um, and uh, it also specifically notes that it is, quote, uh, open to new immigrants who match the requirements and are looking for Canadian experience comma, women who are looking to join the workforce after a career break. And I actually came across this, this um, we came across this after, um, you know, I, I had set out the slide around the issues uh, around um, the gendered impact and the impact on newcomers, but this really just sort of speaks to it so directly um, uh, and really puts it front and center. And so finally, uh, with all of these challenges laid out, uh, just to talk about what you can do to help young workers, uh, you can educate students about their right and their rights and encourage them to critically assess these issues. You can do that in your classes, in particular, uh, the pre-placement classes that you have. I know that I've spoken to some of these classes. It's you know, one of the most enjoyable things I've done. Uh, with, in terms of public legal education, uh, you can carefully vet potential work credit placements to ensure they offer meaningful learning opportunities and aren't just cheap labor and unpaid work. I'm, I know that you folks do this already, but it's obviously super important given the lack of, of oversight. You can help ensure students 
perform volunteer work that serves a humanitarian, civic, or charitable end, isn't in a for-profit context, and doesn't displace paid work, um, helping to guide those positions. Uh, you can work with your school boards and your unions to try and push for stronger regulations and oversight regarding these issues. And finally, uh, you can support student and youth-led advocacy on these issues because the changes that we've gotten to date have been from young people fighting and pushing back uh, and to get further change and further improvements, it's gonna be more of that. And uh, in your role, uh, you can support those students who are doing that, who are gonna be the next generation of fighters uh, on these issues. And that is all from me. I wanna thank you all so much. Uh, apologize to Ryan and Michelle in advance for taking a couple extra minutes. Uh, and I will now uh, turn it over to you folks. Thank you so much. Absolutely, that was, that was so great and so reflective of so many of the conversations that we at OGEN have had internally, because as both a nonprofit organization with limited funding and also one that is really invested in the education system and in young people as being the ultimate beneficiaries of everything that we do, I feel like over the process of all these, all these changes, it's been 10 straight years of constant conversation about how to really do right by young people who are trying to build themselves up and get experience and also you know, suffering the, the disparate economic impacts of, of the opportunities that are available to them. So I appreciate that systemic look at, uh, at where we are. Um, let me quickly introduce uh, Ryan White. So Ryan is a partner at Cavaluzzo LLP, where he's co the co-leader of the firm's construction labor law practice group. He's a graduate of Osgoode Hall Law School, uh, much like myself, uh, where he received several academic awards, unlike myself including the Nick McCombie Prize for the best paper on workers' rights. Uh, he's also spent time in the workers' rights division at Parkdale Community Legal Services, which many of you will know in Toronto. Uh, and he's been a longtime volunteer with the Workers' Action Centre. During his education, Ryan was active with student government, including the University of Guelph Student Union, the Central Student Association, Osgoode Hall Student Caucus, and the York University Senate. Uh, and he's recently been counsel to many workers within the gig economy who are seeking recognition as employees or organizing towards other collective goals. Um, and that's really what we want to hear from him about today, uh, the sort of emergence and, and process uh, that's going on right now surrounding gig apps like Uber, you know, Foodora, all these ones that have been in the news recently. Uh, so, Ryan, I will turn it over to you. Thank you so much, and thank you for, for uh, inviting me to take part today. Um, before I put the, the slideshow up, um, just a bit more background in terms of the, the gig issue specifically. Um, so I was counsel when um, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, uh, or CPW, uh, successfully unionized Fedora. Uh, and uh, I guess things move, we move fast rather in the, the gig economy. So some of you may have forgotten Fedora already as they left Canada about a year ago, but um, I had helped uh, CPW uh, win a certificate there, um, which was uh, part of a longer campaign that I'll touch on throughout the presentation. And of course that then meant as well that when Fedora did go bankrupt, um, shortly thereafter, uh, I'd been involved in negotiating uh, some coverage for workers who would have otherwise uh, been excluded because of the, some of the very uh, same factors we're going to talk a bit about today. And I, I did want to kind of hark back to Josh's presentation, which I thought was fantastic for a moment. At the very, very end, he had that um, uh, unpaid internship uh, ad that he put up on the screen. And I had not heard of Hello Work uh, uh, Inc. or .com. There's a few different iterations of it online. 
but I, I did search for it while Josh was closing up his uh, conversation or his presentation. And what I thought was interesting was that uh, not only are they posting what would appear to be illegal uh, internship uh, postings, but their uh, slogan online, and I would love to share the screen with you, but it gives me a uh, some sort of security warning when I try to click on it. So I think you can make some conclusions about maybe the legitimacy of the company, but their slogan is the quote, the app that Uberizes hiring. Um, so I think certainly one of the things you'll see when I take you through my presentation is that there's a great deal of overlap between a lot of the issues um, that Josh talked about and a lot of the issues I want to talk about. And I think at the core, um, there's really a few themes that kind of keep coming up. I think one of them is, you know, an attempt to take vulnerable workers, uh, young workers included within that and kind of move them outside of, you know, all of the protections that we've set up, even if those protections are inadequate, but all of the protections that have been set up um, to try and make sure that those workers have a basic level of uh, employment standards. Um, but also I think it's a, it is in some ways a positive story because I think there has been a lot of fight back. Although certainly the positives there, I think are a bit mixed in the sense that uh, uh, certainly industry is fighting back a great deal uh, and the government I think continues to have a lot of work to do. So without further ado, I will, uh, I'll, I'll start the presentation and just like Josh, I'm gonna take you through um, some slides. Uh, so I will share my screen in just one uh, moment. So you should see that up on the screen now. And in, in terms of um, what I want to take people through uh, with the gig economy, um, I want to do a few things. Um, um, one, uh, one thing you'll see in the presentation when I take you through it is, um, I think whereas Josh did a fantastic job of linking this specifically to some of the things you're going to see uh, in your work or uh, in your day to day as students, the gig economy is something I think you may be more on the cusp of. Most of the companies, um, this comes up in a later slide, but I've done some research in the lead up to this, and most companies will expressly state on their, uh, either on their apps or on their websites, that you need to be 18 years or older to, to work through the app. Um, so I expect it's the kind of thing where um, you may see students at the very tail end of their studies in high school, um, getting a first job through Uber or Skip the Dishes or DoorDash or things like that. Um, but you may not see it at all as well. Um, or you could see people, I guess, working through siblings uh, apps and things like that. Um, but I do think that there are some broader themes uh, to talk about. And I, I do think, um, of course, it's certainly still one of those things that's very, very relevant to young workers, because if you're not working through a so-called platform employer or a gig employer, and I use those terms interchangeably uh, in high school, um, you may by the end of it, and you may, you'll certainly, I think, be doing it um, once you go, kind of go past your studies. So a, a few quick themes, I think, that are important to kind of talk about at the outset. Um, one, I, I do think this is, uh, this functions the same as for the, the interns, the broader issue of misclassification of employment, I think is really one of the best examples, I think, that you can come up with in terms of looking at the differences uh, in the way that the laws are, say, written or articulated by uh, tribunals like the labor boards um, and how they're practiced in real life. And we'll, we'll put some more um, uh, kind of meat onto these bones later on. But I think one of the central themes of uh, this entire issue is the fact that companies who have been operating the gig economy, just as companies that have been operating through interns, have always been very, very transparent about what they're doing, are kind of using well-known loopholes and are really just daring um, people to stop them. Uh, and in fact, have generally not been stopped at all by government. And in fact, to the opposite, we've often seen you know, legislation or regulations that have, have, have kind of aided this uh, along, or at least enforcement um, of those regulations and legislation that has aided uh, this end and this exploitation. 
I think one of the things that's that's impossible to talk about or not to talk about when talking about the gig economy is kind of the dangers of, of PR and brand attachment. Um, these are all companies that have kind of branded themselves as tech companies um, by and large. So I think Uber is the best known example, Lyft to a lesser degree. I think our, you know, these are not companies that are operating at the margins of the economy. These are companies with billions and billions of dollars in investment capital with very, very well-known high stakes investors and the kinds of things, you know, often when you do work through, um, you know, with, with precarious workers or vulnerable workers, you'll see employers that are a bit more fly by night. And, and certainly that's not the case with the big platform employers. They are very, very large and they've done a very, very good job of, I think, both endearing themselves to consumers, um, to young people, and also to governments. And we'll come back to that, but I think that's a myth that needs to be punctured. Um, one of the things I wanted to, I mean, this is one of the few hopeful things I think in the presentation, um, and it was a, a kind of underpinned part of Josh's presentation as well. Um, so there is some hope is that we've seen very, very successful worker-led campaigns, both in terms of union recognition, in terms of class actions, you know, but also just in terms of, of kind of basic organizing that affects day-to-day -day, uh, lived experiences. Um, in terms of, I'm um, oh, sorry. Uh, in terms of, um, of uh, uh, in terms of kind of where that's going, though, it's not all good news. Insofar as there certainly is, um, you know, this ongoing uh, uh, struggle, and what we're seeing in part uh, is now the big employers kind of push back uh, and, and themselves make some gains. And I, I did want to close this talk uh, by talking about uh, a process that, that Josh and I have both been involved in. Uh, that's taking place right now in Ontario, and which will likely have a big impact upon gig workers here in this province. And so let's talk, and I just want to make sure that everyone can see the slides advancing. I think Zoom, I'm on Zoom daily, and it still fills me with so much anxiety. I see Josh giving me the thumbs up, so I appreciate that. So let's first talk a little bit about um, what gig work is, because I think one of the things that will be a takeaway from this talk is, it's not really clear what we're talking about um, when we talk about gig work, and it's not something that I'm gonna be able to resolve for you in the course of this talk. Um, there are a few different kind of overlapping, uh, I think, elements that we see in much of what we talk about when we talk about gig work, right? So we typically see that it's dispatch based. Um, and so that includes kind of more traditional things like, you know, Uber and Lyft. It includes things like DoorDash and Skip the Dishes and Fedora. Um, it can also include uh, a, a whole uh, array of, you know, different casual dispatch based assignments in a variety of different sectors. And I'll take you through some of the different apps that have popped up. But to be clear, this is also very much kind of an old tech solution that employers have been employing and, and using to exploit workers for a long, long period of time. One of the things that you will see is kind of a constant uh, uh, factor is the downloading of costs onto uh, employees. And that typically takes the form of you know, forcing people to provide their own equipment. So of course, the best case examples are things like having to provide your own car or gas, or bike, smartphones, et cetera. And one of the key elements as well is that it's almost all on demand. So it's not just casual in the sense that you may not know what you're doing tomorrow, um, but it's all based on kind of uh, being broken down into smaller tasks and being parceled out on kind of a, a, a task by task basis. And I'll come back to this when we talk a little bit about, I think, just the psychological impact of gig work as well. Um, you know, certainly it's part of the legal landscape of gig work, but I think one of the things I want to make sure I don't simply just kind of gloss over is the fact that this is really, I think, changing the way that we talk about work. And I think it's uh, um, kind of putting precarity or making it so that precarity really uh, is everywhere uh, within the workplace now. 
And then the biggest thing, and I've bolded this, is that one of the biggest functions of gig work, really, and this is not necessarily a defining feature, but it's something that we see time and time again, is that workers are often misclassified as contractors. And in fact, workers are invariably misclassified as contractors. And this is really where you see the hook for employers. So it's not just about downloading costs, but it's also about this kind of very active process of saying, look, uh, we want to define your employment in a way um, that we can say that you're not employees. And I'll take you through what that means, why an employer wants to tell its workers that they're not employees, why it wants to say that they're contractors. But it has a really, really big impact in terms of, of an employer's ability, not only to control people on a day-to-day -day basis, but to also do so in a way that, that they're doing so as cheaply as possible and undermining uh, the social safety net as best as they can. And to be clear, while it's very, very cheap for workers, right, and, or at least very, very effective in terms of keeping down labor costs, um, one of the things we have seen is, you know, the income of some of the CEOs of the big gig economy companies is enormous. Uh, DoorDash, for example, had gone public this year, and I believe the most recent estimate was that their CEO made $400 million dollars uh, in the calendar year of 2020. So certainly uh, it's keeping down certain kinds of labor costs, but inflating others. And one of the things that I think is really, really fundamental here is that this isn't new. And so certainly it may look a little bit new in the sense that um, smartphones uh, have been around now for, for more than a decade, but um, certainly are, are you know more recent than employment itself, obviously, um, but it's not new. And in fact, one of the things that we've looked at when, when dealing with the Fedora case was, you know, basically looking at all the different cases that the Ontario Labor Relations Board had looked at, you know, these kinds of arrangements go back into the 60s. When you first look at the kind of academic um, research that looked at the issues of, you know, people being misclassified, it goes back into the 1960s. But even you know trying to find some sort of middle ground so for example looking for you know a dispatch based employer who was utilizing an algorithm and a computer to assign people to shifts um, we could see uh, something that kind of fit that description as far back as 1992 so you know decades and decades ago now um, and so this isn't something that's new and it's something that employers have kind of continued to push um, and i think that they've made a renewed push um, uh, Kind of with the rebranding of the gig economy. One of the things that I think is interesting about, about gig work is that um, while it's very much um, work that's targeted at young workers, it's actually evenly spread out throughout um, uh, uh, the workforce. And I think this is actually an important thing to note at the outset because I think one of the ways that the gig employers will, will try and um, you know, I think kind of lessen the impact of what they're doing. You'll often hear this from people to say, well, you know, look, it's just people who are starting out or it's young people who want flexibility or, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, they're millennials um, or Generation Z and, and, you know, who knows what they want in terms of the workplace. They want flexibility or they, it, all this kind of stuff that really doesn't track when you talk to people individually. Um, but I think it's important to kind of puncture this notion that, you know, this is, um, you know, work that can be substandard because they're largely a younger workforce. Um, I mean, one, I think that's just fundamentally atrocious, right? It's not, it's not good reasoning. It's certainly not equitable reasoning, but it's also not true. It's spread out throughout the workforce. And one of the interesting things is it's actually, uh, of all of the populations that are overrepresented, those over 65 uh, are the most overrepresented, which is not to say that they're the highest number of, of workers or the largest percentage of the workforce. But if you look at, let's say, the number of people who are over 65 in the population and look at the number of people who are working in the gig economy, that's where you get that disconnect. As I mentioned, all of the major apps have wage limits, or age limits rather. That's not to suggest that um, that can't be circumvented. It'd be very easy, for example, to have an older sibling who signs up, um, you know, uses their driver's license or their ID 
to, uh, uh, to get work, um, you know, or uses some other form of ID, which maybe is less legitimate, uh, and then uh, uh, goes out of the app because there's not much oversight of you know, who's actually doing the work. Um, but there is a formal age limit on pretty much every single app. And it's quickly expanding into uh, other work. And to be clear, in many ways, it's already there, right? Um, you know, through temp agencies, and, um, you know, for example, particularly in the home care sector or in you know, staffing of long-term care homes, something we saw a great deal during the early days of the pandemic. You know, this model of kind of a central pace dispatch, you know, signing up and doing it online, it's not just the Ubers and the Lyfts and so on that are doing this, um, but you are seeing kind of a more formal or more traditional is the wrong word, but uh, a more formal uh, uh, kind of expansion of the gig economy. And I've given you some of the different um, companies there, different apps. I think we all know what Instacart, um, Amazon's Mechanical Turk is, is certainly well known and is interesting in large part because it's kind of pushing the envelope in terms of what we think of as gig work, deals more with uh, often tasks that are difficult to computerize, but can be done at home, so things like data review. And of course, general labor and healthcare is listed there as well. And I've just got some numbers here. I'll go through this quickly because I know we want to get to questions. Um, but we know very, very little about the gig economy in terms of what its workforce um, looks like. Most of this relates back to a study that's linked in the bottom of the slide there from StatsCan in 2019, but it's certainly growing and it now makes up nearly 10% of the workforce. And it's largely low paid. And so you'll see that the average net income in 2016 was just over $4,000 that low-wage workers are much more likely to be um, in platform-based work. And then just a few other things to kind of talk about in terms of both myths and also um, kind of recurring uh, factors. So one of the ways that I think people often talk about gig work in a way that's meant to kind of devalue it or to kind of call it, you know, to kind of undermine the questioning of its legitimacy is to say, well, look, this is all just short-term. It's just people with a side hustle. And that's not really backed up by the stats. There's certainly a lot of, of short-term turnover, but more than a quarter have been there for three years or longer. And if you think about, you know, what your job begins to mean to you after three years, you can see that for some people, they're very much a part of this economy in the, the long term. And just as with internship work, you know, definitely kind of operates through the lens of vulnerability. And so we see more vulnerable workers being pushed into gig work. We don't have much stats. You'll see the last bullet point there is, is around non-status workers. There's not much information on that as you'd expect. But certainly when I was doing the Fedora work, one of the kind of recurring themes was that there was a large group of non-status workers who were working within the gig economy because one of the ways that they could uh, get work with, with less oversight, less formal oversight of things like documents. Um, so that's one of the issues. We also see that migrants are more heavily represented. Uh, female workers are actually uh, represented at a greater rate than than men, largely because of the way that the gig economy has kind of expanded into uh, caregiving fields. Um, and so that's really what uh, kind of a snapshot of what the workforce looks like. And then it gets to this issue of the effects of misclassification. And um, I anticipated that Josh would cover off some of this and he did a very good job of it. So I wanna kind of take you through kind of a higher level uh, a summary of it. But really this is the fundamental issue, I think both of you know, the problem with internships, but also more specific to my presentation, the gig economy. You know, it's really about an attempt by employers to try and take workers and move them out of you know, this classification of, of people, employees, that we've given a certain um, type of meaning under the statutes and to disentitle them to all the things that come with this. And I, I didn't put it into a slide because it doesn't really, it, it's almost too bewildering to even make sense of it. But one of the things that can, you know, I think really drive 
the point home of the importance of classification is this, that largely in Ontario and anywhere in Canada, you know, employment is heavily regulated by statute. And it's really, really atomized into smaller parts of, you know, kind of what it means to be an employee. So just in Ontario, for example, uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, if you're an employee, you have rights that come up under the Ontario Human Rights Code, right? So rights to be free of discrimination, for example. You have uh, a right to a safe workplace under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, right? But those are two different pieces of legislation. They use two different definitions of worker, right? You have minimum standards that are guaranteed to you as part of the, uh, uh, the Employment Standards Act, which is a lot of what Josh had taken you through, the ESA, right? And then if you want to form a union, you have to look at a, a different piece of legislation, and that's the Labor Relations Act. And that's really where the big fight in Fedora took place. Um, if you leave your work, say, because of a pandemic and you want to apply for EI, well, now you're dealing with the Employment Insurance Act. And if your company goes bankrupt, is what happened in Fedora, you're now dealing with an entirely different set of legislation. And again, you know, different definitions at every turn. And it really does, you know, I think, create this situation, which as a worker, you're largely left on your own to try and, and piece this together. And it means potentially as a worker, you're having to constantly fight and reassert um, your entitlement to certain benefits. One of the things that came up in Fedora was, you know, we won the right to be certified. And workers would say, well, that's great. Well, now I'm an employee. You know, I want to get things like minimum wage. I want to get things like vacation pay. And, you know, it's kind of crushing them to have to go through this process of saying, well, actually, no, you know, to do that, we have to file another, you know, either a class action lawsuit, or we have to try and fight uh, through the courts or the bankruptcy process, um, or we have to file another complaint with the Ministry of Labor, right? So it, it is really one of those things that's really, really difficult to wrap your head around, um, but certainly becomes fundamental. And here's just some of the more, some additional details. Um, this was something that became very, very apparent in, in COVID. Um, and there's some, there has started to be some research on this that most gig workers didn't feel like they were adequately protected during the early days of COVID. And this continues on today, right? Um, there's some fantastic articles in the Toronto Star, for example, about some of the things that, that gig workers were doing, you know, deliveries they were making of medicine and things like that, that made them feel uncomfortable, but also they were so precarious because they were literally going from kind of, you know, delivery to delivery in order to survive, um, that they didn't feel like they could necessarily turn that down. Um, and of course, the, the Ministry of Labor has not been particularly proactive investigating uh, gig workplaces. Um, we talked a little bit about the Employment Standards Act and minimum standards. The, the best research out there would suggest that compensation taken as a whole is 20 to 30 percent less for gig workers than it is for others. Uh, and that's more based around just the kind of employee versus independent contractor divide as a whole. Uh, I flagged for you earlier the problems with EI, uh, the Wage Earner Protection Fund, which is um, the, the federal fund that permits people to recover some of their wages, say when there's a bankruptcy. And that was one of the things we had to fight with Fedora. And there's a broader issue as well. This just came out recently. It's not just about undermining, um, say the social safety net for individual employees, but it's also a, a broader question. Um, there was a study that was released about a month ago that suggested that Uber and Lyft um, had been able to circumvent roughly $130 million in taxes. And that's just Uber and Lyft as a result of the ways that they had misclassified drivers uh, here in Canada. And, you know, one of the things that, that I'd alluded to at the outset that I wanted to come back to is, it's, you know, I think when we talk about these things from a, a strictly legal perspective, I think we get focused on those things that we can easily quantify, like wages and so on. One of the things that came up time and time again when I was talking to workers with Fedora 
one of the impacts of say, you know, the, the labor relations board decision saying that in fact they were employees for the purpose of the labor relations act was really kind of intangible, right? One of the things that workers would say is they say, look, I feel like an employee, right? I go to work every day. There's this other party that has all of this control over me, gets to tell me what to do. You know, I don't set the prices with customers. You know, I don't go out and recruit new business. I'm really just a cog in, in a larger machine. But I'm being told that I'm an independent business person, or I'm being told that I'm a, an independent contractor, and it just really does this number on you know how they both interpret uh, uh, the world, but also how they interpret themselves and how they see themselves. This is the positive part, and I'm running a bit behind, so hopefully I won't have to gloss over this too much. But like I said, one of the things that has happened is that there was a successful union uh, unionization attempt that was the Fedora case. Unfortunately, it didn't result in, in bargaining rights because, or, well, it resulted in bargaining rights, but not in practice because Fedora closed up shop and, and left the country. There's an ongoing um, certification attempt with a subset of Uber. That's the Uber Black uh, application that's ongoing right now. Um, a number of class actions, both that our firm is doing, also that Josh's firm is doing and others, where workers are really banding together and attempting to do what the government should be doing to kind of self-enforce uh, their own minimum standards. Uh, and that's hopefully going to change things a little bit. And you also have groups like Gig Workers United, and these are all links that you can click on uh, once it's distributed, uh, if it's distributed electronically, and you can go look at those groups. And it's not just a, a local fight, it's very much a global fight, and we've seen uh, major, major victories elsewhere. Uh, often victories are being rolled back, but we've seen uh, wins in Great Britain, in Australia, uh, Italy, uh, initially in California, that's been undone a bit. We've now got, um, uh, and this is a bit of an oversimplification because Prop 22 is really just a, a piece of legislation that applies uh, in California, but we are seeing platform employers fight back. They're heavily lobbying uh, governments. Um, they're looking to kind of protect um, this way of doing business where they're able to kind of carve out um, their workers from all of the statutory protections. Uh, in California, they spent over $200 million uh, essentially buying legislation um, that would exempt them from ongoing attempts, at the time ongoing attempts to uh, uh, to get them to pay up for, for uh, missed minimum standards. And it's happening here in Ontario as well. Josh and I both made submissions um, to a uh, uh, provincial committee that is currently looking at um, gig work amongst other things in Ontario, and I expect we'll have a report uh, due out shortly. Um, which is being largely driven by Uber's desire to kind of create this new group of workers that they call uh, Contractors Plus. And I think this is really where I think there's, there's I think, an interesting um, uh, point to talk to students, um, because again, this isn't just something that's being, that's being settled. Uh, it's something that's very much being contested on an ongoing basis. And I think something that you know, students will, if they're not already in it, if they're 18 years old and working in the gig economy, um, certainly will be, will find themselves uh, in it uh, shortly. So I want to kind of give you some, some closing um, thoughts there. And one of the things I want to talk a little bit, and you'll see that I've, I've uh, given a screenshot of uh, a tweet from Jennifer Rose. Um, Jennifer is the president of Gig Workers United. And I, I will admit that I love doing these talks. I always feel like there's, you know, lawyers are never a substitute for workers. And I would certainly say that of all of the things that, that you can do to get involved in this or to help out gig workers or to understand the gig work issue, I think certainly listening to gig workers is kind of a primary 
uh, issue. And I think this is one of those things that's interesting to me, at least, in the sense that when I was asking Jennifer about what are the kinds of things that she would say if she was presenting to this group, you know, certainly one of the things she wanted to talk about was um, what I've covered off, right? The fact that people are um, trying to find unions, they're trying to band together and oppose their employers and push back on attempts to exclude them from statutory minimums. Um, you know, she would have also wanted to talk about the fact that there's all these other, you know, parts of uh, of working that aren't covered by uh, the legislation, but certainly are tied up in what um, companies like Uber and Lyft are doing, right? One of the big fights that has come up just recently is that Uber, for example, uh, around Uber Eats just changed the amount of time you've got to make a decision on an order. So you've actually got an incredibly small amount of time um, uh, to make a decision. I think it's as little as 15 seconds. You know, one of the things that workers have talked about is there's really no way, for example, if you're biking through downtown Toronto or in some other smaller city, you know, to actually hear your phone ding, you know, stop, make sure you're being safe, you know, get out your phone, you know, look at it, uh, make any sort of informed decision about the next thing you're going to do. You know, that in fact is just pushing you into this world where, you know, one, you can't stop because everything is kind of task driven, but two, where, you know, being able to balance all of the things like working safely while at the same time with you know making sure you're able to get additional work becomes increasingly hard and it has this toll that it takes on workers and certainly one of the biggest things i think that i that, that um, you know certainly i would say to young workers and uh, people like jennifer would say to young workers is you know just the need to fight back not just in a legal sphere but also in terms of um, you know making sure that you're you're organizing so you get the benefits of you know that kind of common fight um, so you're pushing back and making sure that you're looking after your mental health when you're kind of working in that go 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 precarious fashion um you know but also that you're just you're kind of questioning what it is you want in a workplace what we all collectively want um in a workplace and i think also if people were looking for resources um uh, i would certainly encourage you to go and, and follow someone like jennifer on twitter to go and talk to some uh, to some of the people in gig workers united um, but definitely um sarah Mosta Sahade at the Toronto Star did a fantastic um, podcast that came out last year, um, just at the very beginning of the pandemic. So it definitely covers some of the pandemic. Uh, it was called Hustled. Uh, you can find that online. It was really a fantastic deep dive um, into uh, the gig economy in a way that I, I think I really can't do in this context. So I'm gonna stop there just because I know that uh, we're kind of giving you a lot of information in a very short period of time. Um, and also we're, I think we're really at the end of the presentation as it was. Um, but I wanna make sure that people have some chance for questions if there's time. Thank you so much, Ryan, that this whole subject is so, so interesting. Um, we did drop links to both Jennifer Rose's Twitter and the podcast that she recommended called Hustled in the chats. Um, and I think we've had some other people kicking in references to really useful places uh, like uh, I think Ryerson's uh, student young young workers rights hub, which seems like it would be an incredibly useful thing. Um, it is a few minutes after three, so if anyone for anyone who needs to run, um, thank you so much for for being with us. Um, I'm going to take one second here to. Uh, I hope we'll have a second to to take a couple questions, but just before you run. I just wanted to draw everybody's attention to the rest of the great program that we have coming up over the next two weeks uh, to point out a couple of sessions. Tomorrow, we're doing one that is essentially an overview of everything that OGEN offers high school teachers. So all of the services, how to do things like book a speaker for your classroom uh, to have someone 
uh, like but not exactly Josh, come and talk about internships or or to find out more about gig apps, anything. Um, we will be having a, a number of really education law focused sessions, including one uh, called Three Areas of Law Impacting Your Student Outcomes that talks about uh, the legal framework around special education and about refugee youth who have been in the uh, child welfare system and are aging out of it. Lots of interesting stuff. A session on paralegals and careers in law that are not just lawyers, uh, the Black Legal Action Center on anti-Black racism in schools, and of course, we'll be ending with our annual tradition, doing the top five most significant cases of the past year, this year hosted by Sonia Lawrence, an outstanding uh, legal academic out of Osgood. And we wanted to invite you all to join us for the Hux Kitely Exemplary Justice Educator Award Ceremony on August 26th at 5 p.m. We'll be honoring Kim, who you can see on the right here. And there's an email address on the screen if you'd like to RSVP for that. Otherwise, all the registration information is on our website. Uh, and I want to say thank you to the Law Foundation of Ontario, which makes all of which makes it possible for us to present all of this programming free of charge, along with all of the generous individuals who share our vision of access to justice and broadly available, reliable youth information. Um, but if anyone else has questions, uh, please feel free to drop it in the chat. Um, I think, you know, if I was going to toss one thing at you guys before we maybe in the next two minutes before we, we sign off. Um, you know, it occurs to me that both of these are also fundamental rule of law issues, right? I mean, it's hard to overstate how much, um, you know, gig apps like Uber and Lyft entered this space, very aware of regulations around, you know, employment issues and independent contractors and frankly, taxi certifications and, and all that stuff. Um, and really, you know, you said it was, it was daring people to come after them. Um, it, it occurs to me that both of these, both of these things plug into much larger issues in the justice system and the uneven application of, of legal regulation. Um, but it, if we only have a couple of minutes left, I, th I wonder if either or both of you could tell us a little bit more about the push for the contractor plus classification, because I know that's ongoing and so you can't give us conclusive information, but what is that? What are they asking for? Um, do you have a do you have a take on on that? Sure, maybe I can jump in quickly. I know Josh will have Josh wrote some fantastic uh, submissions for the OFL, um, and he can speak to that as well. Um, I mean, largely what they're looking at doing, and it comes a lot from from Uber, like that specific term, contract plus, actually comes from a press release they sent out in May. You know, I think what they've recognized is that the tide is turning, right? Every single jurisdiction uses a slightly different test. I didn't take you through the test here in part because there's about four or five different tests, depending on piece of legislation you're talking about. But, you know, the outcome of those tests when they're applied, which kind of broadly look at things like control and integration, um, have found that, uh, uh, you know, gig economy employees are just that, they're employees. And, um, you know, Uber in its IPO documents a few years back had kind of flagged misclassification as this enormous, you know, enormous issue in its business model. And that if, if suddenly that, you know, if the tide kind of turned legally, if suddenly they in fact were, um, uh, you know, found to be misclassifying workers in, in order to pay damages, and there was just a class action was certified last week, and that's now going ahead to kind of the, the stage of having to prove those damages. 
Um, but if those ever actually came to fruition, that they would just be, they'd be cooked. Their, their model would fall apart. They'd owe a lot of money and they would presumably be going bankrupt. And so I think, you know, Uber's very, very intelligent company. All of these companies are very, very intelligent. They're not, you know, they're doing, it, I think, because it's, you know, I, the fact that it's immoral is not the reason they're doing it. You know, it, that's the thing that just stop them from doing it though. And so I think they're now looking at, you know, well, what is some way of, of kind of blunting that change? And I think one of the things they're trying to say is, well, couldn't you be contractor plus, right? Couldn't you be say, they, they've kind of tied being an employee as being inconsistent with kind of flexible terms of employment. I mean, that's not true, it's a bit of a myth, but they've said, look, you know, to workers, uh, uh, you know, if you want to be flexible, everyone wants flexibility, then, you know, you should support us. And what we're going to propose is some sort of middle ground. So, you know, probably is going to look, no one knows what exactly look like. It probably be some sort of carve out uh, in the States where it came up first. And as part of Prop 22, it's meant carve outs from things like minimum wages and so on. But so that's likely what they're looking at. And I think we're all just waiting to see what the Ford government dreams up um, in the next month or so. Yeah, Ryan hit, it, hit the nail on the head there. Just a couple points to quickly add. Um, uh, they are looking for a carve out. That's what Uber and the gig companies want. They're pitching it as an enhancement of rights because it's, you know, theoretically uh, slightly better than the, the current independent contractor model, but it's, it's a bit of a, a bait and switch. Uh, it's really about uh, carving these people out of employment status forever uh, in exchange for a, a sprinkling of additional benefits. Um, the position of the OFL and the labor movement and workers groups and, and gig workers themselves uh, has been pretty consistent and united. Uh, the only fair future for gig workers is employment status and equal treatment. Um, I'll link in the chat the, the OFL Josh, I think you've accidentally muted yourself there. <laughs> Shoot, I was just saying, I, uh, I tried to click uh, enter uh, and I muted myself. I was just saying, I just sent a link in for the OFL submissions, which um, uh, deal with some of these issues and, and towards the end of it, uh, set out uh, uh, what we think uh, or what the OFL thinks would be sort of a progressive path forward for gig workers. And that's, of course, the Ontario Federation of Labor. Of Labor, right? yes. Sorry, I should, I should oh, that's okay. explain terminology before I'm using all these acronyms. That's all right. Well, I mean, I don't want to keep you guys too much longer than this, but I do want to say we've had a bunch of people popping up in chat to say thank you. This was really informative and will be helpful with students. So Riot and Josh, thank you both. I'm sure it's a busy time in both of your offices as well. Um, and it's just been wonderful to sit down and, and learn a little bit more about these very topical, very topical items. Um, so everyone who is still here, I think Christy is going to drop a link in chat to uh, the sort of feedback short survey that we would love if you would fill out. Uh, don't worry, we'll email you a copy if you don't click on it now. Um, but otherwise, uh, I hope we'll see some of you again tomorrow or at other events of the Summer Law Institute. And um, we wish you otherwise a, a very safe and smooth return to another challenging year. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Bye-bye. Take care.